0: You're listening to a Marka Sahaba online radio podcast. just gone eight oh seven Central African time. Uh, let's welcome a pious and sakshishya summa with a hearty assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh and medical files uh, keeping you company this evening. And, uh, very wet Durban and alhamdulillah, summa alhamdulillah, life goes on now. On medical files uh, this evening. We're joined uh, by a uh, cardiologist, uh, Dr. Ashraf Musa, alhamdulillah, who's been very busy with uh, the pandemic and uh, COVID 19. He's been through it. He's been through the mill. And during this t- uh, very testing times, doctor has agreed uh, to join us. And Alhamdulillah, he's in the front line. And he will talk about the challenges uh, that over with it. And Alhamdulillah, you know, uh, saying Alhamdulillah, because we all come from Allah. You know, we're always reading Inna lillahi wa inna Ilaihi raji'un from Allah we come and unto Allah shall we return. Just lost my cousin, Uh, Earlier on uh, this afternoon, uh, Nisam Jamadar, uh, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala fill his cover with Noor and uh, grant him the highest stages of Jannah and many others uh, that have made parada from the dunya that have succumbed uh, to COVID-19. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala also grant them the highest stages of Jannah. Joining us is someone that's very dear to me. I embrace him. I celebrate him. Uh, I love him for the pleasure of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Let's welcome uh, Dr. Ashraf Musa. Is also a cardiologist with a hearty assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Tell me, how are you doing this uh, fine, uh, beautiful evening, doctor?
1: Wa alaikum, assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. With the grace of the Almighty, I am doing well.
0: Uh, Dr. Ashraf, you know, we're going through the tapestry of life, so many challenges you know, you went through uh, COVID-19 you came out of it, and Alhamdulillah you know, what are the latest you know, you look at the uh, statistics and you see so many Muslims are making parza from this dunya and you know, especially looking at the incidence of COVID-19 is very high in our our community Uh, Doctor, you know, fill us in uh, take us through the scenarios
1: Well, It is uh, a very dire situation at the moment. Ever since the second wave struck South Africa around the third and fourth week of November, it reached a peak about 10 days ago, with definite signs now, uh, with a decrease in numbers coming in, but a very devastating rise, almost a vertical accent in terms of the maximum numbers rushing up to about close to 23,000. But thankfully now we are seemingly coming down. Unfortunately, with this current strain, which we shall, for simplification, call version 2, this current strain has mutated to become more spreadable. It spreads much more easier into the community. And not only is it more easily spreadable, it's, it's associated with an increased mortality rate of more than 30% from the first strain, which we, use, we shall refer to as version 1. So unfortunately, we have got a second wave, which is almost double the severity in terms of the infection pattern, and double and worse in terms of the spreadability. Situation is easing off now, Alhamdulillah, in KwaZulu-Natal, but 10 days ago it was a very serious situation where they had to be put up emergency assessment centres. With the grace of the Almighty, Human, uh, Muslims for Humanity put up multiple centers in various hospitals in KwaZulu-Natal to ease the pressure on the emergency departments that were unable to cope and to provide a quick assessment for the streams of patients that were coming in so they could be properly, you know, quickly evaluated and then appropriately managed as per their needs.
0: So, doctor, you know, we also know, heard of incidents of people, you know, uh, treating themselves at home. You get the oxygenator, you get uh, the oxygen tanks and uh, the ventilator. Tell us uh, how a typical home setup is run, uh, doctor. And, you know, when people isolate uh, uh, presently, I uh, notice uh, many other organizations are collecting funds uh, to actually get oxygen tanks and all these. Uh, fill us in on that, uh, what's happening on the side, uh, doctor? Yes.
1: It's a, it's a very good question, and I must say I'm, a, I'm an advocate of this home-based therapy as a frontline treatment. I'm not one uh, to, uh, to advocate uh, admissions to a hospital environment unless absolutely necessary. And, you know, with all the knowledge that has been obtained over the past few months, uh, with the general family practitioners coming into the fore and many organizations. Um, uh, helping out patients with pulse oximeters and oxygen concentrators, doctors doing telephonic consultation, patients able to communicate quite easily with their doctors via the cell phone or or, or WhatsApp, etc. I find that uh, I've got a very good success rate. I'm all for home-based treatment, as long as we are monitoring the situation and pick up the signs quickly. I feel the outcome is better simply because Mere fact that you're sitting at home in your own environment, in your own bed, with your own monitoring devices, it's you cannot put a value on this. A so hospital is a very lonely place to be right now. Nurses are overworked. Um, the monitoring may not be up to scratch. Patient may not get the assistance that he'd be getting at home in a home environment as in the hospital. So not putting the hospital down. The reality is that the situation is so dire Mm. and the hospital staffing crisis is also one of the factors where many nurses have contracted COVID. So other patients in the ward also got to go go and get quarantined. So it's, and of course, the resources are constrained not every patient has a ventilator or a more sophisticated form of oxygen therapy available. So getting to hospital is one thing. Getting the appropriate care, because it's resource-constrained, resource, uh, resource is a quite another matter. So in terms of getting yourself set up in a home environment, you have to have two things. You have to have a pulse oximeter, and you, you will put this at the end of your middle finger, either your right or your left hand. You wait for 10 seconds, and you get a reading, If you're over 95%, then you're doing well. The other 95% is not good. You need to seek attention. And as far as the oxygen concentrator is concerned, normal air we breathe in contains roughly 20% 20 oxygen. The concentrator concentrates the oxygen up to 37 to 40%. It's worked on a simple device to plug it onto your power supply at home, and you can adjust the literage from anything from 1 liter to five liters or seven or eight or 10 liters, depending on the size of the concentrator. And then you can monitor the response by uh, taking regular readings on your fingertip with the pulse oximeter. In addition to this, you take your usual medications, which are all available over the counter, which your doctor will prescribe for you as per your blood tests and as per your readings. And most patients, when I say most patients, I'll say over 90% of patients can be adequately managed. Uh, in the home environment. One must not forget as well that most patients get mild flus. They don't get mild infections. They are in contact. They're COVID positive. But other than a very mild fever or a couple of loose stools that they may have or body ache or fatigue, they don't progress to the pneumonia stage where they are oxygen required. So one, one can quite easily monitor most patients out of the hospital environment. Hospitals should be reserved for those Patients will need advanced oxygen support.
0: You know, doctor, also there's uh, this perception that uh, most that are going into hospitals are not coming, uh, you know, not coming back alive and something's happening. But many say that, uh, you know, Indians generally uh, succumb to, uh, you know, fear-mongering factors or maybe uh, their health is much uh, weaker or the immune system, you know, uh, maybe much weaker than the other groupings in the country. Any truth to that, doctor?
1: You know, one has to walk into an environment, uh, the hospital. The hospital at the moment is not purely a, the environment that one wants it to be. You know, where you've got nurses that are actively involved in managing patients, uh, patients can see their nurse, nurses can see the patients. There's no anxiety in, in terms of helping the patient to the bathroom or adjusting his bed clothes or changing his garb. Or giving him, uh, giving him the tender loving care that he needs. This environment that we're currently exercising in our hospitals is a, is an environment that is not patient friendly because of all the needs to, of the personal protective equipment and the guard and the fear. Fear not only for the, not uh, the staff themselves, but the patient himself. He's all alone. He's not able to communicate with his family effectively. He's not, uh, quite satisfied with perhaps the attention that he thinks he should be getting. So I think there is uh, quite a factor in terms of depression, anxiety, isolation, that also plays a role in recovery. I mean, we know that when we talk about tender, loving care, the besting aspect of medical rehabilitation and treatment is so important. Mm. But these normal allied, uh, allied uh, things that should be occurring are not occurring in hospital at the moment. And one must take that into consideration. And surely, if you are anxious, you're depressed, you're feeling isolated, you're feeling lonely, uh, and you've fear of dying alone without your loved ones being with you, it will have an effect in your ability to, to mount an effective response to fight the infection. There's no question that this will also affect you in terms of ultimate outcomes. So again, as I said in the beginning, one has to be very careful about which patient to put into hospital. And uh, some patients stay, the longer they stay in hospital, the worse the outcome. Not only do they tend to recover from the COVID, but the hospital is also an environment where the infections are, are there. And many patients get secondary bacterial infections. Just as you think you're winning the battle, they suddenly turn sour on you. They're going to fulminant uh, respiratory failure, quick organ failure. And within a matter of hours, family have to be called in to say, you know, prepare to say your goodbyes. Yet uh, the day before or so, the patient was quite comfortable conversing with his family on the telephone. So that's another risk that you pick up secondary bacterial infections. Also, patients are put on steroid treatment as part of the treatment for the COVID. This also tends to diminish your immunity. We have to do the treatment on the one side, but knowing on the other hand that it also comes with its own perils. So it's, it's a bit of a, uh, a rock and a hard place situation. And I think the uh, the entire process, from what I can see in the second wave, patients tend to do better uh, at home if they're properly monitored and they have the support structures. And alhamdulillah, many, many organizations that have come across uh, an umbrella organization called Muslims for Humanity have come to the party in terms of giving support to the patients, oxygen concentrators, other support, putting up facilities uh in the hospitals where patients are assessed at no charge, at least they get the BPs checked, they get the pulses checked, they get the oxygen levels checked, they have blood tests done, they are monitored for a few hours, they're sent home in the evening, they call back the following day to be given results and to be monitored again. And this has provided a uh, big help in decompressing the congested hospital environment. And most importantly is giving the patients an easy access to an emergency department which has got suddenly been expanded. From a six to eight bed emergency department to a 20 to 30 bed with the tent like structures that are very adequately resourced with all comfortable beds and monitoring equipment and drip lines, etc. And this is what I think is really turned the tide as far as the quasi situation is concerned, which I must say was. Catastrophic. I can't describe it in any other ways.
0: Mm, I thought you were very uh, graphic indeed uh, this evening, uh, Dr. Ashraf Musa. And you know, you talk about uh, various factors uh, coming through. And Alhamdulillah, bless you for you know calling a spade a spade here yeah, or the stethoscope a stethoscope. Because uh, there you say you know if you could uh, do it at home, do it at home. At the hospitals, you know, you get uh, the infections or the, uh, the the environment is not like before where you walked into the hospital, you had a TLC, uh, the doctor Doctors are getting COVID, the nurses are getting COVID, and there's also, amongst them, there's also the fear factor. You know, focusing on the fear factor, uh, I remember talking to Asram Kota. I think you know him as a well-known commentator. And he had been to yeah. hospital. And fortunately, he had three tests, uh, uh, Dr. Ashraf. And he was uh, he proven uh, negative, but he had an infection, you know, a pneumonia, and an infection of the lungs. So uh, he stayed at hospital and he said, you know, Shafat, I'll tell you something. It is that fear factor that most of them are succumb, uh, you know, uh, are making parza from the dunya because they whilst in that environment. Uh, they overcome with the anxiety and fear. Uh, you know, how would you react to that, Ashraf?
1: I must agree with Aslam Khotar. His experience is from a person who has gone into the hospital and he went into the hospital not having COVID. But having witnessed, I think, in graphic detail exactly how the fear factor, the anxiety, the isolation, and the suboptimal nursing care forced upon by the personal protective gear, the lack of the human touch, you know, is, uh, is lacking at the moment purely because this is an infection where you've got to avoid the human touch. So, conversely, where the human touch is such an important aspect of therapy, that is not done. You're, you're examining a patient with thick gloves, with thick masks, the your, your lenses are getting fogged up, you double glove yourself, you hear with the stethoscope, you know. Uh, it's not an ideal situation. Uh, of course, the main monitoring equipment is the main guide to us. In terms of monitoring our patients, we look at the screen, we see the blood pressure, we see the pulse rate, we see the oxygen levels. We can count the number of breaths the patient is taking. We can see that he's struggling or whether his respiratory rate is improving. One day it may be 30 per minute, the next day it's down to 24, and then 22, and then you know he's doing well. He needs lesser amounts of oxygen. So in this type of situation, one relies more on the monitoring, the monitoring equipment rather than the physical touch and the physical examination. So I can well foresee what the environment is. I mean, uh, it is not an ideal environment. This is an abnormal disease, it's an abnormal situation, it's an abnormal time. And there's abnormal uh, treatment that has to be given that, uh, and an abnormal type of patients. I mean, we're now with the second wave we're seeing young patients. My youngest patient is 27 years old. A man who was uh, attending the gym four times a week, no, no uh, preceding medical conditions non-smoker, uh, clean medical history, but fulminant uh, COVID pneumonia needed uh, high-flow nasal oxygen. Alhamdulillah, he did well. But the problem is why the hell should he, in the first wave, come to the hospital? This was not what we were seeing, seeing in the first wave. We were seeing the older category patients, the 55, the 60s, and the over, and the mortality rates then were the 70 years and the 80 years. But now we are seeing mortalities in young patients as well. We're losing patients that are 42 years old, and forty seven and fifty seven and fifty five so really the second mutated virus is a much more severe strain with much more predilection to cause serious lung damage and failure of uh, all the resuscitation measures. Even the most sophisticated methods of giving oxygen are not proving enough, and patients are having an inexorable cause to death.
0: Absolutely, uh, Dr. Ashraf uh, Musa. Also, you know, you're talking about, uh, you know, the pulmonologist, uh, he's come to the fore. People talk about the pulmonologist. How busy, he, he must, have, must be the busiest person in all the hospitals, uh, doctor. Yes,
1: this is uh, mainly a pulmonary disease. The deaths occur mainly from pulmonary-related complications. So the pulmonologist is now the busiest specialist in town. And really, uh, they are working their socks out. Of course, there's a big shortage of pulmonologists in the country. There's, I don't think there's more than 100 pulmonologists for 58 million. So general physicians, cardiologists, gastroenterologists, people who are treating, rheumatologists, everybody is treating patients with COVID. Uh, look, they are protocols. They are monitored. They are. They, we know what to do. There's in every uh, hospital there are people, what we call them the COVID team, which is made up of uh, an in- anesthetist. Uh, intensivist and a pulmonologist or a physician. So these things, these, this team comes to the fore as the patient needs escalation. So as I said, if the patient responds with just needing normal oxygen via the oxygen in the normal ward, ward oxygen we call it, and doesn't need any, uh, high flow oxygen or CPAP mask or other, or ventilation. Where the then the intensivist or the pulmonologist or the anaesthetists come to the fore. Uh, that's the time when you don't want them to come to the fore, to be honest, because that's now we're really reaching a situation where where the outcome is dire and uh, and the mortality rate is is frighteningly high. You know you don't want to get there, but people do have teams in every hospital. Uh, the problem at the moment is that many of the of the the teams at the moment are very stretched. So you'll get an anesthetist or an pul- intensivist who's looking after patients in one hospital and is not able to service another hospital. So you get then general anesthetists coming in who also are also well worst and trained in uh, ventilation, et cetera, coming in. So you do what you can. But alhamdulillah, we, we are a very fortunate country. Our level of medical training is extremely high. Our doctors are in demand all over the world. We're used to working in uh, highly pressurized uh, environments. Although I, none of our training has ever prepared us for this type of epidemic. But nonetheless, you will find that the South African doctor is uh, the one ready to put his hand up. Uh, and uh, in a sense, you know, the term, the alcohol ban and the lockdown has resulted in a tremendous reduction in violence induced medical emergencies. And rightly so. Uh, so all the resources are now COVID, COVID, and COVID. You know, there's no time to have any other sickness at the moment. Only all Allah, subhanahu wa ta'ala, will know how many patients have demise at home, you know, from strokes and heart attacks and simple pneumonias, etc. But right now, the entire medical fraternity is busy from A to Z to convert every ward, be it a pediatric ward to a maternity ward or a surgical ward or a day ward, all are becoming uh, COVID wards. You know, so, so it's all hands on deck with every cabin, uh, you know, being filled up by COVID patients.
0: Yes, uh, Dr. Ashraf also listens. I remember that we're opening up the lines, 0847863132. We'll be taking your WhatsApp, and inshallah, you have any questions for Dr. Ashraf Musa, I'll be fielding it uh, to him. Yes, uh, Doc. there's also this talk about the ivermectin, you know, uh, people or do- doctors or a certain group are taking uh, the government to court, and, you know, it seems like the government is uh, dragging its feet when it comes to ivermectin. Uh, what's your views on that?
1: Well, I've got I've got strong views on that, and you would you'd hear today that the South African uh, SAFRA, the regulatory body, has approved the use of uh, ivermectin uh, in controlled circumstances, which in inverted commas means that a doctor, if he feels his patient will benefit, is free to use it, but he needs to monitor for side effects and make a make a note of that. So my views on ivermectin is, uh, is a view that I have... Uh, I have got a lot of confidence in the product, to be quite honest with you, in a, in an area whereby we have seen reports coming through from, first of all, Bangladesh, then Monash University in uh, in Australia, and then some whole lot of other reports, and then a whole lot of studies that have been, uh, you know, studies that have been put together uh, for almost 4,200 patients. There is no question that this drug has got something to it, that, is of benefit. And because it's been around for so long, over 40 years, it is what we call a parallel drug. It was designed to treat something completely unrelated, you know, a parasite, a worm in the bowel. And we have now discovered that it has its anti-inflammatory effects are uh, helping patients with COVID. And the beautiful thing about this product, it appears that medical personnel who are at risk can take a preventative dose, you know, two tablets, three days apart, once a month or once in two weeks. And we found that there is an 80% reduction in healthcare workers getting COVID when they're working in an iris environment. So not only can it be used in the prevention, but it's also used in the treatment where where it's advocated that you use it as early as possible. So the first studies, because they came out of Bangladesh, the world didn't take this drug very seriously. Even I didn't take it seriously. There was a GP colleague of mine from P who phoned me one day and started talking about ivermectin and I and I read up about it and, and I told myself about Bangladesh only 80 patients nothing and then and then more and more information was coming out eventually, even uh, the uh, a group of intensivist doctors in America started making a presentation to the National National Institute of Health stating that it is criminal not to give patients an opportunity to use ivermectin. And they succeeded in getting uh, the way with ivermectin. So ivermectin is suddenly come to the scene. A parallel drug that was designed for one purpose and was uh, effective in another. So I, I have got confidence in this product. I've seen it work. I have uh, advocated its use when it was not quite fashionable to do so. I have seen some, uh, some results. Uh, surprisingly, the results, we have seen, uh, seen patients that were in a very severe condition make good improvements. I've seen patients that recover quicker when they are put on it. And as I said, if you're going to use it, you must use it earlier before the mnemonic phase, which occurs on day 7 to day 14, occurs. And I'm so happy, happy today that the South African government, with all the pressure of doctors and, and activists, have finally dis- uh, given the authority and control back to the doctor's hands to treat the patients. There was that rampant usage that I'm aware of, and I think it's a right decision, and I think that if something can help these patients, why not? Especially if it does no harm, and that's the beauty of it. Why not? Mm. So it's a well-researched drug. The inventor was a Japanese scientist who discovered it in a bacteria in, in some soil in Japan, and this bacteria was manufacturing ivermectin, and uh, he won a Nobel Prize for his invention. And ivermectin is right now the darling drug uh, in the COVID world. I'm not saying mm-hmm. that's going to help everybody and anybody, but certainly there are results out there that show it's got a definite effect in helping healthcare workers have less chance of developing COVID when they're exposed to that in that environment they're working in. And it also has associated with a better outcome in patients who've got the COVID and have put themselves onto treatment. Uh, it's a simple I- drug
0: dosage. And it's quite Mm. safe. They're really enjoying it this evening. And, you know, if they say, give him a medical prize this evening, because Alhamdulillah, the barakah is flowing, the information is uh, flowing. He's so wholesome, really brilliant talking to you. Time for us to go for a break. When you get back, inshallah, we'll be fielding those questions uh, that have come through. You're listening to a Marcus Sahaba online radio podcast. Number to call is 084 3132. That's our WhatsApp number, taking all your questions. Sister Firoza said, Asalaamu Alaikum, brother Shafa'at, and Dr. Ashraf Musa. Fascinating discussions. I noticed that the price of garlic has gone up and also ginger. It's believed that both these ginger and garlic will help COVID remedies. How true is that, Dr. Ashraf Musa? Well, a good question from Firoza. I mean, what's it, 400, 1,000? I don't know what's the price per Kg of uh, ginger and garlic, doc. But uh, will it help uh, COVID patients?
1: Yes, a lot of things will help COVID patients, and there are a lot of a lot of allied treatments we are using in the mainstream medical world. uh We know that uh, steam kills the virus in the nose and in the mouth and along the eyes. So when you come back from shopping or going to checkers or wherever, you come back, you steam yourself, uh, and uh, if you grain out more than once and you steam yourself, uh, you know, many times a day, two or three times a day. So stuff like ginger and garlic and honey and cinnamon, there's no question. These are thousands of years old treatment. All of them are immunostimulants. All of them have got natural antibacterial effects, anti-inflammatory effects. These are things that uh, should be given as well. I have confidence in it. I've been to a place in India uh, Research Institute for Onani Medicine and Homeopathic Medicine in Hyderabad. I went as a final year medical student in 1981. Uh, I spent about a month there. Were, at that time, the main uh, treatment was for diseases that we as medical profession are not very good at treating, things like vitiligo, et cetera. And, uh, and I saw cues and cues and cues of patients. And one mustn't forget that uh, the Germans... Uh, very sophisticated in terms of the medical health. They do a lot of uh, a lot of the medications include ginger and garlic, not only to bring down cholesterol but for general health. So there's no question that all this is how, all this works. So we we know of cumin seed and cumin oil, same thing. Uh, that also has got anti-inflammatory and antibacterial and antiviral properties, and immunostimulant properties. And these are all safe. These are all from the ground. These are all creation of our Almighty Creator, and they've been left. They have stood the test of time. And uh, you know, granny's tales. Uh, if you have a cough, if you have got a flu or a fever, homemade remedies. All of them are made from uh, from the substances you mentioned, including good old lemons and orange juice, etc. Honey. So yes, uh, I would say the system must continue using these products. And all performs part of this uh, multifaceted attack against this horrible virus that we
0: have. Alhamdulillah. You know, I can tell you, doctor, you're very wholesome this evening, and I like that. I mean, you're forthright and wholesome, really enjoying that. Ismail uh, says, "Assalamualaikum, uh, Brother Shafat and uh, Dr. Ashraf, are really enjoying the program. Uh, keep it up. And he goes on to say, uh, well, there's so many theories uh, concerning COVID, uh, Dr. Ashraf Musa and it spread from Wuhan, China. Can uh, you, doctor, give us your take? Yeah, uh, you know,
1: uh, we live in very strange times. We live in times where funny things are happening in our environment, with our weather, with our disease patterns. Then we suddenly got this virus, we call it a novel virus, N-O-V-E-L, which means a virus. Even though there's over a hundred types of coronavirus, but this particular coronavirus made an appearance out of the blue. Why did it start in Wuhan? Why did it start in China? You know, so I keep a very open mind because in life, I think as you get older and you suddenly realize that you uh, you stick to your old dogmas and then you get a shock. The world is mm. full of battles. You know, the Chinese are battling the Americans. The Russians are fighting against the Americans. There's a big problem happening in the South China Seas with disputed islands. The world is having an economic war, war without any guns being fired. Who knows what the truth is? But I keep my mind open. If this virus was created in a laboratory and there was a laboratory accident and this, the world is full of stories like this, then yes, uh, China has done extraordinarily successful. And I mean, this is what Trump's big problem was. How come the the virus starts in China? They control it after only 82,000 people get infected, with deaths of 8,000 only. And why does the United States of America get almost 25 million of its 330 million residents being infected, with a death rate of 425,000 people as of yesterday, with a mortality of more than six years of fighting in 1939 to 1945? where 400,000 American soldiers died in World War II. And this virus comes in one year. It does what, six years of thousands of bombs and millions of people involved in fighting at 400,000 American casualties. So what does one know what is behind all this? It may well be the truth may come out one day, and the truth may be so uncomfortable that it may have to be hidden. If it was intentionally released, To create chaos in the world and to fight some sort of war, unorthodox war, amongst the superpowers of the world, an emerging superpower like China, who is already a superpower already. Who knows? So I keep an open mind. But certainly, in my experience, nothing happens for nothing. Here we are, 100 years from the greatest epidemic, the Spanish flu in 1920, and uh, with all our sophistication. I mean, the Chinese decoded this virus in a matter of 48 hours. They knew the exact genetic strain. And yet we could not find an effective treatment for so many months. Okay, we know it's, it's a process. But it's brought the world to its knees. It's brought everybody to its knees except China. Now, I'm not pointing fingers at China. I don't have the knowledge or the uh, proof of anything. But I keep a very open mind But something is strange about this virus. It's very strange that it literally stopped the rotation of Earth, if you can put it that way. You know, everything Mm. has come to an halt. And whoever is uh, behind it, every aspect of our lives will never be the same again. To go and stand in a restaurant, to go into uh, a cinema, to go into a mosque, there'll be anxieties and fears. You know, to go overseas in an airplane now with uh, 260 people in your flight, you're not going to be as relaxed and comfortable. You're going to be very wary of the man who sneezes near you and coughs near you. You know, you're going to wear a mask even though there may be no need to wear a mask. So literally speaking, this has changed everything. The entire world order has been changed. And, uh, I think the story has not been completed yet. There's a lot more that will eventually come out. And some of it may not need to come out. Otherwise it can create a war. I mean, if there was any, any trip to a conspiracy, it is basically declaring war. Uh, in a certain way. So sometimes the slip may be there, but it'll have to be sort of put in some secret bunker and stored away with the files to be opened in a hundred years time. So I keep an open mind. And I guess that's because we've, we have that age now where we have to keep an
0: open mind. Mm-hmm. You know, Doctor, I feel like hugging you. eh? To hear someone talk like that, and you know, Alhamdulillah, you know what? Allah has uh, imbued you with hikmah. It is your hikmah that has come through, and already, Doc, you know, we know each other for over 20 years. I did my first medical show with you, Doc, and your barakah is flowing. Uh, Tulfik says, Assalamualaikum. what a lovely show, Brother Shafiq. Uh, bring on Dr. Musa more often. Well, yeah, he knows that. Every four weeks, I told him on standby, doc. His question is: Are many are many are of the view the government should have implemented a stricter lockdown in January and eased it as uh, we open schools and u- universities? Uh, Doctor, your views? Uh, uh, interesting question from Atufik, uh, Doctor Ashra. Yeah, yeah,
1: it is an interesting question, and you know, they say that. Uh, A retrospective scope is much more valuable in life sometimes than a telescope. So if you look at the lockdown that was announced in March 27, 2020, by the president, a 21-day lockdown, and the reason for the lockdown, he said, was to prepare our healthcare facilities for a surge that's going to occur. And then uh, we closed down universities, we closed down schools, we literally uh, stopped non-essential work, uh, hospitals, we were all given permits to go to the hospital. We canceled all our appointments, all elective operations were being canceled. We had to repurpose the hospital to take in this influx. And it never came. It never came. It only came in June, July. So hospitals saw a massive downturn in their figures and numbers, and medical aids were smiling all the way with large amounts of surpluses that were accumulated, and that happened throughout the year. I'll give you a simple example. A patient goes for a bypass operation, the bill comes to almost half a million grand. A man, and that operation takes four hours. And yet the person who goes to the intensive care unit is 15,000 a day. And he stays 10 days in the hospital, comes to 150,000. So you make a turnover of 500,000 for a four hour operation and maybe two days in ICU and three days in the general ward before you go home. And you have to keep the patient for almost a month in a hospital and to have that turnover. So it was devastating, and the numbers didn't come. So so the problem is this, that one can never blame the government and the authorities for what they did, because one had to prepare. But did we prepare? I can tell you the private side prepared. The state side did what they could under the circumstances. There were field hospitals opened up in Cape Town, in Durban, in Peter Marisburg in the Royal showground Halls, and in Johannesburg as well. I believe there were many hospitals that now became referral hospitals. And we got to act together. There's no question. But we did it uh, with a tremendous cost to education system, for universities, for schools. The economy went to a negative minus 8%, you know, shrinkage. There were over a million people who lost their jobs. Many more to come. Companies used the opportunity to retrench staff. The government had given them carte blanche. You know, there were no... There were no CCMA hearings anymore. So uh, a lot of companies used the opportunity. So the whole world has been capsized yeah. But yes, it was needed, not in January. I think that lockdown came the right time around March. The first case came in from Italy on the 1st of March. It was an imported case from, from uh, overseas. It was first discovered in Havik. And subsequently, those 14 people that went as a group most of them, 10 of those 14, got infected, and that was the beginning of the, the beginning in terms of the South African COVID experience. So with, with hindsight, maybe we shouldn't have closed down in in, in uh, April and May. Maybe we should closed a little bit later. But certainly we had to get ready. We had to get organized. Whether the government used the time sufficiently to prepare state hospitals, only they can answer, but my knowledge and experience tells me they have nothing. Really accomplished other than the high-end tertiary institutions in all the provinces, like Kurtuski with Albert Latuli, and Gray's Hospital in Peter These tertiary, tertiary institutions, they have done a sterling job. But the district hospitals were battling with nurses, resources, oxygen supply, personal protective equipment. And of course, in between all that was rampant corruption, unbelievable corruption at, at the worst time, you know, so, so it was a it it, it really was a uh, catastrophic time I think for the country. I think we also got to ask ourselves is we got 1.4 million cases in South Africa, and the next highest country has got like 200,000 cases. But if I'm correct, I think it's, it's Egypt. So, with all our sophistication, we in the southernmost tip of uh, the continent, we have got. Uh, limited uh, airports. I mean, we've got three international airports. We've got 32 land borders. Uh, we closed the borders down. But did we really succeed compared to the rest of Africa? Or is it only because we have done so many tests and maybe the figures fingers are more horrendous in other countries? Or is it because because of our multi multiracial mix of Indians and, uh, and uh, mixed race people and whites uh, and our higher, older population, and uh, where the average age in uh, Africa is, is like 23, our average age here is more around the mid-30s. Is it because of our demographics that we hit so hard? I don't know. Uh, or is it because we've just done more testing and we are, our, our figures are more accurate? But certainly, one will need, when the dust settles, one must see, how come Egypt and Morocco and Algeria and Zimbabwe and Zambia? I'm not seeing the devastation that we are seeing in our hospital. We see it daily in the front of our eyes. So the figures don't lie, you know? So, I mean, i give you an example. Early on in the days of the second wave, we were told that this was an infection that seems to be a mutation. It is spreading much more. But it is not associated with so many deaths as the first wave. And I immediately knew, no, this can't be true because this is different to the experience of we what we are seeing. We are seeing a more severe disease, a higher mortality rate, and bigger numbers. And now the proof has come out. This new strain, variant number two, is 50% more infectious, means it's more easy to spread than the first wave, and it's got a 30% more mortality, which means instead of 10 people in 1,000 dying, there's 13 or 14 people out of every 1,000 infected that's dying. That's a 30% increase in mortality. So this is the reality. I think it's a... uh, Question that will be studied after the dust settles, as to why we are where we are, as one of, I think the 13th uh, highest country in the world, uh, and the highest by far any one of the other 54 countries in our continent. In our continent, why were we so badly hit?
0: Yes, sir, Doctor. 50 now 50 now 50 I know more. why you uh, lecture the uh, Nelson Mandela Medical School. You just uh, MashaAllah, you're just awesome there And uh, Kasim uh, says assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh Brother Shafaat and Dr. Ashraf Musa You got the Ummah captivated this evening JazakAllah for that Kasim He says, uh, just the other day I had a bout of uh, stomach cramps and headache A strong cup of tea with uh, two disciplines And I was on the mend It works. Uh, 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 it works for me all the time What's your opinion, uh, Dr. Ashraf Musa? Okay Captain, the medication there, Doc? Yeah. So, I mean, you,
1: uh, I won't tell you how much of Dysprin you took, whether you took two Dysprin, whether it's 100 milligram <laughs> one or the 300 milligram one. But, you know, Dysprin is also a very well-used drug in the COVID situation right now. And Dysprin is an antipyretic, takes a fever away. It's an anti-inflammatory, reduces inflammation, and an the analgesics takes your headache away. So Dysprin is a panacea, and that would have helped you. A cup of tea. Caffeine is also a stimulant, and will 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 stimulate your immune system. Of course, if it is green tea, that's even better. So uh, that worked for you, and alhamdulillah, I'm happy for you. Whether you had COVID or just uh, acute viral infection, but certainly you took the right stuff. You took Desprin, which is proven uh, healer and a panacea, antipyretic, analgesic, anti-inflammatory, and you did, and you did tea, which is uh, also has got medical medicinal benefits. Allah
0: bless you. Allah bless you, uh, doctor, too. And uh, yes, Kasim, you got your doctor keeping you buoyant, keeping you positive, and giving the right nasiyah this evening. MashaAllah, uh, this message uh, says, I reached my 60s, uh, still in Mashallah state. The odd bout of constipation was told uh, too much of fruit uh, can bring about uh, this condition. Any truth in this? Uh, too much of fruit to giving you constipation, doctor? Any uh, truth in that?
1: No, uh, there's no truth in that because fruit is uh, fiber. You know, whether you have mangoes, whether you have watermelon, or whether you have leeches, or any other fruit, it's high in fiber. It's a natural laxative. <clears throat> the best natural laxative that I've ever come across is prunes. You know, prunes, I I found, uh, when I had my constipation, I discovered that uh, I buy a small bottle of prune juice from Spa. Made by this famous uh, fruit juice company in the Cape. I forget the name right now. It's a 300 ml bottle, dark black prune juice. And, safari. Uh, I... Safari. Yeah, that's it. A safari. That's right. So, so this is my homemade remedy. So, so I would take Dufalac, uh, two sachets in a glass of water or a little bit of milk or oh, sorry, a cup of tea, and half an hour later I'll take the small bottle of prune juice. That was for my constipation. And I tell you what, it worked naturally. It worked very well. It was it, 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 it very effective. And it's simple treatment. And you know the story of the pregnant woman who has got large hemorrhoids, and whose baby is pressing on her bowel and she's constipated and she's battling. What will the mother and the mother give her? They'll give her prunes. So prunes is a very good laxative. Our food is laxative, so I would think that if our brother is constipated, despite having adequate amounts of food, maybe he needs to get a bit investigated, eh? see a gastroenterologist and just mm. make sure there's nothing else uh, holding up his uh, normal bowel motion.
0: Yes, uh, you know, many of our people uh, succumb to colon cancer, Doc, so it, it has to yeah. do with the dietary uh, the, the type of food we eat.
1: Yeah, like colon cancer is one of those cancers that can run in families. So if somebody in your family has succumbed from colon cancer or had colon cancer, then one would go regularly for a colonoscopy. There's also some blood tests that are called tumor markers to see whether you got colon cancer. If you get, if you've got any chronic inflammatory bowel conditions like ulcerative colitis, then you have to go for regular colonoscopies simply because that is, uh, uh, one of the conditions that precedes and puts you at greater risk for getting a colonic cancer. Overseas, the American president, by order of Congress, once a year has to go for a medical checkup, so he gets himself checked into a military hospital, veterans' hospital, and as part of his evaluation, he has a colonoscopy done. So a uh, screening procedure It's important. And if you've got any alteration in your bowel habits, you know, alternating constipation or diarrhea, or if your stomach used to work very regularly and now suddenly there's a change in your bowel habit, either you're having loose stools or constipation, that is certainly an alarm, a symptom that you must get investigated by the appropriate specialists. So that's that's what I would say about that particular topic.
0: Shazakallah for that. Uh, Iqbal says, assalamu alaikum. I'm uh, really enjoying the program, uh, Brother Shafa'at and uh, Dr. Ashraf Musa. He says, may I take the opportunity of congratulating those Muslims that have uh, selflessly helped and donated uh, during uh, this difficult time. May Allah add more barakah in their health. And the rosie, I'm running out of words. Uh, and I would also like to thank Doc's family for coming to the fore for so many projects uh, that uh, the Ummah needed, and they were there all the time. Actually, I can tell you this, uh, Brother Shafa'at, the Musa's walk the talk. Also, your doctor is so eloquent. Uh, can he uh, comment? Doc, there's a feather in your cap. I mean, alhamdulillah, even we embrace and celebrate the family for doing sterling work. May Allah give you all more barakah. And, you know, you've with so much of barakah this uh, evening. Your comments are, uh, Doc?
1: Well, you know, I mean, Allah tests people in numerous ways. And this epidemic has come through and has been a test for humanity, for our religion, for our togetherness. And a moment makes heroes. Uh, There's many heroes that have emerged from this uh, devastation that has occurred in our country. I can tell you that people that uh, were sitting quietly at home suddenly dusted themselves off and said, let's see what I can do. So we have a hero in our community, a man who suddenly went on a drive and bought oxygen concentrators. Then there was somebody else that said, You know what, let's go to the hospitals and put up tents and then there was this organization formed by one of our senior members in the Willowton group, Muslims for Humanity and got a whole lot of other people to come together, put all the manpower, money power, resources and creating magic. Magic means you go to a hospital, you see lines of cars waiting for evaluation, and within eight hours you put up a tent with twelve beds, with, with mattresses, with bed sheets, with monitoring equipment, with oximeters and you've got volunteers to assess patients. Now that is the power of unity and this is what the Omar can create when united. So I've seen people that I knew they had talents, you know, in their own business and Barkai in their own businesses. But they've liked this drug, ivermectin, that's repurposed from killing parasites to showing some effect, positive effect in the COVID epidemic. I've seen people who repurpose their lives from their normal activities, who suddenly come and put their hands up and fearlessly, with so much of energy, that it's infectious the energy, more infectious than the COVID virus I they say so, that they've got people together. And I think this type of what has I've seen personally with this organization called Muslims for Humanity, with all the associate organizations like Alim Dad Foundation, uh, Darul Yatama al-Masakim, the, uh, the clerical organization, Jamia Ulama, uh, the the uh, National, South African National Zakat Fund, and many others. The names are slipping me now. You know, there's maybe 10 or 12 organizations. What has been created here is a template for any future problems and avoids replication, it avoids duplication, wastage, more coordination. You know, one man may be good at putting up a tent, other man may be good at figuring mattresses, other guy is good at getting a truck organized. So I think that what has happened with uh, with this virus has brought people with rare talents and repurposed their lives and given them talents they never knew they had. And I, and I see this quite satisfaction. What impresses me the most is where government will take two or three weeks to put up a structure. This army of, of soldiers, Muslim soldiers, are putting up structures in 24 hours. I I can't understand it. You know, I, I heard about this, but 24 hours, I've seen it with my own eyes. They did it in Ahmed al Qadi Hospital. They did it in Midlands Medical Center. They did it in k to Ridge Private Hospital. They did it in Hibiscus Hospital. They did it in Day Med. They're ready to go at state hospitals. There's a usual red tape, but they're ready to go. And the enthusiasm and the commitment is, is absolutely remarkable. Leadership was provided, yes. Allah must bless everybody that has donated in cash or kind and effort and sweat. But no doubt that the, the, uh, the virus will leave a very bad taste for, for the number of people we have lost in the community, but it has definitely galvanized and brought people together and I think this is a good step for any other catastrophes. I just hope this unity can continue mm-hmm. and this type of uh, spirit must continue to bring ease to all those in hardship. Allah bless Achille all you do. those volunteers.
0: Yes, Dr. You know, we've run out of time. You know, as I said, the baraka is flowing. Uh, before we leave you, your parting words? My parting words is
1: please stay safe. There's one thing I can say is you don't want to get this virus. It is not possible to get this virus if you stay at home, if you wear a double mask. You avoid being in contact with people 2 meters or 2.2 meters apart. You avoid touching strange surfaces. Let's look after ourselves. We protect ourselves and we protect others. As others will protect themselves, they protect us too. So let's let's fight this thing together. Let's avoid this horrible virus. It's a tremendously tragic disease. And we can't prevent it. There's no question. You can't possibly get it if you're sitting at home and not in contact with anybody. It's a virus that is carried by saliva, by coughing, by talking, by breathing. And if you don't have it and none of those around you have it and you're behaving, you'll never get this virus. It's not possible. Allah must not make it an airborne virus. That is the thing. Can't rotate it to become airborne. That will be a devastation of another order. Allah protect us from that. Right now, it is it is born by your breathing, coughing, sneezing, talking. Those are my doubting words. Be safe, Be safe please.
0: Jazakallah khaira, Dr. Ashraf Musa, the barakah flowed, and Allah bless you for your consultation this evening. Inshallah, I'll talk to you in the near future. Asalaamu Alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Thank you. Yes, our listeners and jazakallah uh, khayr for all your questions. They really added uh, to a fantastic show this evening. Mm-hmm. Time for us to go for the Zahn and inshallah we will be uh, continuing after that. Where the pertinence of punctuated. Let's go for the Zahn.